Our scripture for today comes from the Acts of the Apostles. I'm reading to you from Acts chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 1 and going all the way through 18. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and, I was in, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, a voice came from heaven. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, "'Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter.'" He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same spirit that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, thou our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Ever have that experience where it's kind of hard to recognize someone out of place? I remember when I was in high school, it's embarrassing how old I was to tell you this story, but I remember being in high school in the local drugstore in New Jersey, and I turned a corner, and there was my history teacher, Miss Heckman, and I kind of jumped back. Miss Heckman in the Rite Aid? <laughs> now, I just, I was used to seeing her at Chatham High. I wasn't used to seeing her, her in the drugstore. And, and you know, I was a high school student you know that your teachers might need pharmacy items, <laughs> but I just didn't expect to see her there, and it even kind of took me a moment to recognize her. 
And we have these experiences, don't we? Even with church members. Sometimes we recognize each other at church and then we're out in the community for something else and we have that moment of, how do I know you? Where do, are, are you here? Is that you? That can't be you if you're in that place, right? We have this challenge sometimes of recognizing when, we, when someone appears, we don't expect to see them there. Today's story is the story of the power of the Holy Spirit showing up in places where the Holy Spirit was not expected and teaching the people a new thing. I want to spend a block of time. This is a long, complicated story. So I want to spend a block of time walking us through the story of Peter and Cornelius, getting the context and the details of that story. And then I want to reflect with you on uh, how that story became true in historic examples and also in contemporary situations where we get surprised where the Holy Spirit shows up. But I want to start with the story itself, and we're going to start with Cornelius. We had not met Cornelius before Acts 10. This whole story begins and is read all through Acts 10. Acts 11 is the summary version. So Cornelius, all we know is he was a Roman soldier. He was part of the Italian cohort, and he is a God-fearer. Now, a God-fearer is a technical term. It is someone who believed in Yahweh, believed in the God of the Jews, and would have prayed and followed certain of the practices, but wouldn't have been, wouldn't have yet converted, wouldn't have become a Jew. And so he's not considered a Jew. He's a God-fearer. He's a Gentile. He's kind of on the way, but not there. That's who Cornelius is. And Cornelius was up in Caesarea. So we're gonna, we're gonna pretend this is Israel. The Mediterranean's out here. Caesarea is up here along the coast. And Caesarea was the center of Roman power. Remember that in Jesus's day, Israel was under Roman military occupation. And although Jerusalem was the center of uh, religious power, the center of military power was up at Caesarea by the sea. So up here is Caesarea, Jerusalem is down here. Joppa is just down the coast a ways. So Cornelius is up at Caesarea, the center of Roman military power, and an angel appeared to him. And the angel said, send to Joppa and ask for Peter, who is staying at the home of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, ask him to come back to your house and preach to your family so that you may hear the word of salvation. Cornelius uh, received this angel visitation. He was a God-fearing man, and he obeyed. So he sent people down to Joppa, to the home of Simon the Tanner. If you were able to be in worship last week, we ended last week's passage with Peter staying at the home of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. Peter had gone to Joppa to raise uh, Tabitha from the dead. So that was last week's story. Uh, Today, Peter is still in Joppa, this coastal town south of Caesarea. And Peter, meanwhile, has been living at the home of Simon the Tanner, and one afternoon, he is praying. And while he's praying, he fell into a kind of trance and received a vision, and a a sheet came down from heaven, and there were all these animals in it, and reptiles, and birds of prey, and, and he's staring at the sheet, and a voice from heaven said, Peter, kill and eat. Well, 
the animals on the sheet included animals that, that devoted Jews did not eat. The book of Leviticus told foods that Jews were not to eat, like shellfish and animals with hooves. And, and here they were on the sheet, and he's hearing a voice from heaven telling him to kill and eat it. Peter says, oh no, he, uh-uh. he talks back. We, we know Peter's good at talking back. He talks back and says, oh no, I, I, I've never let anything unclean go into my mouth. Oh no. And the voice from heaven says, what I have made clean, don't you call profane. Peter's puzzled by this. And it happens again and again. Three times this sheet descends with all these different animals, including animals that would not be considered kosher. And he's told to kill and eat. And he's so puzzled by this and trying to make sense of it. And while he's still pondering this, he's still up on the roof pondering this, downstairs the door knocks, and here come people from Cornelius's house saying, we've been told we need to take Peter with us back up to Caesarea with us. I guess Peter at that point was amazed enough by this vision he'd received. He thought, okay, I'm going. And so Peter heads up with Cornelius's messengers to the house of Cornelius. And remember, Cornelius is a Gentile. He did not keep kosher. To enter that house would go against many of the Jewish understandings of unclean, you know, clean and unclean practice at the day. So he enters the house and he begins to preach to Cornelius and Cornelius's household. And as he does this, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And Peter is so stunned by what is happening here. He says, what, what, what is to prevent these people being baptized? And so in that unexpected moment of being called to go to Caesarea, we have a second Pentecost. So I want to walk us back in Acts 2, after Jesus ascended to the Father, after they added an apostle by Lot, they were told, wait, the Holy Spirit will descend upon you in Jerusalem, and you will receive power in the name of Jesus. And so on the Jewish festival of Pentecost, which is also called weeks, it's a week of weeks, 49 days or 50 days after the Passover, they were gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of weeks. And remember what happened? A mighty wind came into the upper room where the apostles were gathered and tongues of flame appeared above their heads and they began to speak in the languages of, you know, Jews were all over Jerusalem because of this pilgrimage festival of weeks and people were hearing the good news about Jesus in their own language and they were from all over the region. It was a miracle and some people sneered. Yeah, they're drunk. And Peter preached this powerful sermon and the Holy Spirit fell upon the crowd and hundreds were baptized that day. That's Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon the Jewish community gathered in Jerusalem for this Jewish festival. So Pentecost was the Holy Spirit expanding the, mesh, the mission among the Jews. And up until this point, the believers in Jesus still believe that this is a mission only for Jews. So they are teaching the good news about Jesus around the synagogues. This is not a Gentile thing. The, the Gentiles are still kind of the other. Until the Holy Spirit 
appeared through an angel to Cornelius. Cornelius requested Peter to come, and when Peter came, the Holy Spirit descended, and that moment in Cornelius' house became a kind of second Pentecost. And, and Peter witnessed it, and Cornelius' household witnessed it. They were so in awe of what God had done. Now, do you think headquarters liked it? No. <laughs> so this amazing thing happened along the coast, but the people in Jerusalem hear word of it, and they go, what the heck? What is going on here? We're a Jewish movement. Really, Peter was preaching to Gentiles? What is going on here? And so when Peter traveled from Caesarea back to Jerusalem, they criticized him. What were you doing? What were you thinking? So he tells them the story. And as he tells them the story, what I read to you is Acts 11, they hear the elements of the story and they begin to realize the Holy Spirit was there. And this whole new community of people are believing in Jesus and they begin to understand that Jesus' message is to the Jews, but beyond that to the Gentiles. And so this next group of people begin to allow for a widening of who's invited into this movement. Now, I don't want to be too Pollyanna about this. If you continue in Acts, there's still tension about this. And there's still tension over, do these new followers need to be circumcised first? Do they need to follow the Jewish dietary laws? There's a lot of debate. And we'll read in Acts 15 about the Jerusalem Council when they sort out what happens to these proselytes, the Gentiles who come to believe Jesus is the Messiah. But in this moment, we're at that very beginning of the Holy Spirit doing a new thing surprising the Jesus followers in Jerusalem, finding out that these Gentiles are part of who God wants to welcome as well. Huh, what do you do with that? Will we listen to what God says, the new thing God is doing, even if it goes against what we think is good or right? There's a powerful story in our Methodist tradition, and I want to share with you some excerpts from the journal of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. John Wesley was a very proper, proper priest in the Church of England. He uh, followed church teaching. He preached in sanctuaries. He was a very proper man. But one of his colleagues, George Whitfield, had begun to do some outdoor preaching, and it had really taken off. But, but John Wesley was not sure about this at all. And so I'm going to start with a passage from, this is March 15th, 1739. I had no thought of leaving London when I received a letter from Mr. Whitfield entreating me in the most pressing manner to come to Bristol without delay. Bristol is where this field preaching was going on. This I was not at all forward to do. How's that for a phrase? Would you like to do this? I am not forward to do that. Clearly, that's 18th century English speech. Wednesday the 28th, my journey was proposed to our society in Fetter Lane, but my brother Charles would scarcely bear the mention of it. Charles is appalled. He would scarcely bear the mention of it until a scripture passage begins to turn him around. Our other brethren, however, continuing the dispute without any probability of their coming to one conclusion, we at length all agreed to, to decide it by lot. And by this, it was determined I should go. Thursday, the 29th of March. 
In the evening, I reached Bristol and met Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields, of which he set me an example on Sunday. I had been all my life, till very recently, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. April 1st. In the evening, Mr. Whitfield being gone, I began expounding our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. One pretty remarkable precedent of field preaching, though I suppose there were churches at that time also. And then the next day, uh, which was April 2nd, at four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile. How's that for a phrase? I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. The scripture on which I spoke was this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Uh, and then if you continue on in his journals, you see how the field preaching took off, and he began to preach not only in congregations, but also out in fields throughout England. And he went up and did field preaching in Ireland. And he traveled down uh, south of Wales to the, to the area of Cornwall and preached in fields there. One of the fields where he preached is a place called Gwenop Pit. It's a place where a mining pit had fallen in after the mining had been done. And it now functions as a natural amphitheater. And... Wesley preached in that area, and that is the area my family comes from, who were Methodists centuries ago, because John Wesley got over himself and was willing to preach in the fields. Thanks be to God. We all have things in our mind that we think are behind, beyond the pale. I think this passage of submitting to be more vile came to my mind a great deal. And this is an embarrassing story that's going to be even more embarrassing at 11. So I was a person who really was preferred traditional music. And I've got to say, I still love classical music. I, I really preferred more traditional music. I preferred hymns. And I would hear contemporary worship and some of the contemporary Christian music. And um, I sneered. I thought, it, I thought a lot of it was just garbage. I remember hearing the term 7-Eleven, a joke that would be said was that contemporary worship was 7-Eleven music, seven words sung 11 times. So, so that's who I was. And then I was serving a congregation that wanted to start a contemporary service. Guess whose job it was? Mine. <laughs> so suddenly, I had to immerse myself in a style of music that I really thought I was quite above. And a funny thing happened on the way to the contemporary service. As we put the service together, as we worked with the team of laity who had been yearning for that service, we saw fruit. 
we saw the Holy Spirit and people who were not as moved by the more traditional service would come to our contemporary service and they loved it and they sang their hearts out and I would look at it and think, oh my heavens, look, look at what God is doing. And then after a while, some of the songs, I still think some of it is drivel, let me be clear. <laughs> but, but other songs got into my soul and church would be done and I'd be singing along to them and I would think this is hilarious. I submitted to be more vile and now I'm being converted by this music that I thought I was too good for. God was working in this powerful way. Now, I don't say that, that we need to all do contemporary worship. Isn't it amazing, the diversity of how God works, that we hear God through camp songs and hymns and classical music and contemporary worship, and God works in all these different ways because God wants no one left out. The Holy Spirit blows through and shakes us up and surprises us in what the Spirit yearns to do. In my early years of ministry, one of my closest friends uh, was a closeted gay clergyman. He worked a lot with an, a ministry called Reconciling Ministries Network, which is an unofficial group of United Methodists who were working for full inclusion of gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, and transgendered persons in the life of the United Methodist Church. With his influence, I went to some of the conferences that were led by RMN. When I went to the conferences, I expected them to be a good educational opportunity, and so I learned a lot. And I expected there to be opportunities to learn about advocacy. So I learned about strategy, and I uh, kind of broadened my understanding of scriptural interpretation and sexuality. But what I didn't expect was how powerful worship would be. We would get to the worship services and I would find myself almost immediately in tears. The singing was so powerful, the preaching was so powerful, and I found myself, who frankly have always been an insider, surrounded by many people who had been outsiders in the life of the church, who loved Jesus, who wanted to be part of the church, who wanted to be a part of family, some of whom had been kicked out of their families, some had been kicked out of their churches, and in this setting, got to be family and got to be church. And the power of the Holy Spirit was so palpable. There were times that I would cry through the whole service. I knew I was going to an educational event. I didn't know I was going to a revival. And I would look around and feel the power of the Holy Spirit and think, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing here, but thank you. Thank you that your spirit is here. Brothers and sisters, we believe in the eternal, unchanging love and grace of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. And we trust in Scripture. It is primary as we interpret religious truth. But it is also true that over the centuries, at times, God changes God's mind. Read the story of Noah if you need proof of that. And it is true that certain things that we used to follow not eating shellfish, not uh, mixing different two types of fabric, not plowing, plowing two kinds of seeds in one field. Some of those we don't do anymore. The Holy Spirit shifts us, and some of those previous patterns we find no longer requirement or no longer life-giving, so that John Wesley can get over himself and preach in the fields. 
so that I could get over myself and find real life in contemporary Christian music, so that I was surprised by church in a college auditorium filled by people who had been kicked out of families and churches but knew the love of Jesus in their bones. Thanks be to God for the Holy Spirit who stirs us up, surprises us, creates new community when we least expect it. Thanks be to God. Amen.